Have you been preparing for Christmas? Charlie has not been preparing for Christmas. Who's preparing for Christmas? What have you done to prepare? Some of you haven't started yet. That's okay. Who has prepared? What have you been doing? Tying and wrapping. Buying and wrapping. Okay. Shopping, I heard. Anyone cooking? Baking? Nope. No one's one's eating this year. Okay. Good. Good. All right. Has anyone hung a wreath or hung some garlands? A little bit of preparation, a little bit of preparation. My family, uh, we keep trying to prepare. One of the things that we did this year is because I have two teenage boys, I thought it would be funny if we did Elf on a Shelf. So um, it's really more of a little kid thing, and I thought my teenagers might get a kick out of it. So just kind of be silly, we decided to do this. So if you're not familiar with it, it's a little stuffed elf that you move around your house every day for the entire month of December, and you're supposed to come up with creative little things for it to do. So um, I've never done that because it's a commitment as a parent. It is a commitment, and it's not a commitment that I wanted, but I thought it would be funny this year to do it with my teenagers. So what I was not prepared for was the fact that my, my dog, who some of you have met, who is extraordinarily naughty, um, would be jealous of the elf. And so we have learned that the elf cannot be anywhere like here or lower because he will get it and move it and I walk I come in after being gone and it will be like a murder scene like the elf is on the floor and the whole little scene is destroyed so I've learned I've learned that the elf has to be up high okay so that's fine and uh, a couple days ago or maybe a couple weeks ago I had the box of all the supplies that that I was working through and um my dog knows that the box is associated with the elf. And like I said, he's jealous. And so when I was gone, he, he literally opened up the box. I had it on the floor. He opened up the box, opened up the tissue paper, took out all the things inside and spread them around, ate what was edible, and um, left, left the mess. So I said, oh my goodness, this dog is so naughty. So I moved the box up to a countertop, came home yesterday, only to discover that that was not high enough. He had gotten, in, he had gotten it at this level, pulled it off the counter, everything was spread out. And uh, Adam says under his breath, uh, what, what's your saying, honey? First time, what, what's it go? First time, second time. Oh, I. No, 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 no. Well, you're, say, you're saying that I should know better. So <laughs> I, I, I had it first service. I forgot what it was. Yeah, for, uh, the definition of insanity is to do the same thing over again <laughs> and have the same problems over again. Anyway, so here we are, second time around. The dog's made a mess. Again, looks like another murder scene. So now the box is up high, the elf is up high, and we're just trying to like get to Christmas and hope that this elf doesn't die in the process. Those are the kinds of preparations we've been doing, just preparing for a little bit of joy. But I wonder, church, how we are doing with preparing our hearts for Christmas. Because that's the most important kind of preparation. And the preparation for the arrival of Jesus is something that has a very significant place in Scripture. Preparing our hearts, getting our hearts ready. Making sure that our hearts aren't frozen up, calloused, hardened toward God. Are our hearts ready to receive the baby? I think it's so easy to get caught up in life, not even just Christmas, but life. And for our our sensitivity toward God, our our openness toward God, to just kind of get covered over, to get calloused, to harden, to freeze up. 
for us to freeze up with God and whether it's intentional or not to to get locked into destructive patterns we, we self-destruct in so many ways and to gain hardened hearts in the process I think there are any number of things that have their hold on us any number of things that cause us destruction and cause us difficulty and struggle in our lives anything that's not of God lots of things like selfish pursuits focusing on what's best for me versus what's best for others gluttony is a thing that we all can be tempted with especially in this season I think the temptation to find our identity in another person to find our self-worth in another person and is this other person validating me enough am I if, if this person will say this or do this then I'll know that I'm good enough I think that's something that we often have I, I think we also often depend on other things to numb pain things like substances or liquids or medications I think we can have habits of attacking people with our words you feel cornered you lash out verbally this is a prime time of year to do that people are stressed people are maxed out and we're not at our best when we're like that and so we we verbally lash out only afterward to say oh I wish I wouldn't have done that I think a lot of us wrestle with our tempers with anger I think many wrestle with resentment toward God just God didn't do what you wanted and you're disappointed with him and you don't like how God chose to act in a certain way it seemed like he could have done something and he didn't and maybe there's a little bit of resistance and resentment to God all of that brings about a, a, a cooling of your heart a cooling that can lead over time to coldness that can lead over time to being numb that can lead over time to being frozen these destructive things all take away from the life that God wants for us and we're so used to living with some of these things that we just think this is how life is perhaps we're never going to get free perhaps numbness is the best that I can muster up perhaps spiritual numbness is the best that I can muster up today we're continuing in Luke chapter 1 with Zechariah and Elizabeth Zechariah the elderly high priest who's chosen to enter the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem he goes in there to offer incense and while he is there the angel Gabriel comes to him and he says Zechariah I know you are old but you and your old wife you are going to have a baby in your old age and this baby is going to be a great man his name will be John and he will prepare the way for Christmas he will prepare for the arrival of Jesus and so today we're looking at John the Baptist and the role of preparation that he played for the people of Israel in your Bibles if you have a paper Bible you will see that there are two parts of the Bible there's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament Old Testament Genesis Exodus Leviticus Numbers Deuteronomy Joshua Judges Ruth first and second Samuel. You, you, you know all these right and then they get to the the major prophets we get to the minor prophets and we end the Old Testament with a little tiny book the book of Malachi and then there's actually like a blank page in most of your Bibles at that point and then after that comes the New Testament then we have the Gospels Matthew Mark Luke John and in between the Old Testament and the New Testament there was a period of time there's a 400 year gap in history between the ending of the Old Testament writings and the beginning of the things that happened as recorded in the New Testament 
a 400 period of time, year period of time in which God did not speak to Israel. A 400 year period of time in which God did not speak to the prophets. And in this 400 year period, it was 400 years of waiting, waiting, and waiting, hoping for a savior who would fix everything. Waiting. They had about 200 years of prophecies from the time of Abraham on. The prophets had spoken. God had promised. God had said he would deliver them and lead them into this whole big, great new life, and yet here they were. One of the last prophecies to come, as recorded in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, the prophet says, the Lord speaks through Malachi saying, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Now he's not, the Lord isn't actually talking about the actual prophet Elijah. Elijah already happened previously in history. By the time Malachi comes and prophesies, this prophecy is about somebody who is like Elijah. 400 years of history pass. Okay, so today is... We're in 2022, right? So what's 400 years from, er, from today? Like 1622? Is that right? Is that the right math? Okay, so think back to 1622. That's a long time in the past, right? That much time is what passes. And the, prophe the prophecies come true. We see in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, this is stated about John the Baptist when he was born. And he, John the Baptist, will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Is that not amazing that 400 years later, the prophecy word for word comes true in the person of John the Baptist? It's amazing. What had happened to the people of Israel in this 400-year period of time is that their hearts had drifted away from God. Their hearts had, they, they weren't being completely unfaithful. They were trying to be faithful, but their hearts were a bit frozen up. They were not living according to how God wanted them, and the whole people of Israel had gotten frozen up. Now, now sometimes whole communities of people get frozen up, even spiritually. In the last 20 years, when we talk about the worldwide church, in the last 20 years, Christianity in Africa has grown by 400%. Christianity has just exploded in the continent of Africa. In Latin America, Christianity has grown by 300%. Huge growth. In Christianity in Asia has grown by 125%. And what about the U.S.? Here in the U.S., in the last 20 years, Christianity has grown 27%. Today, 70% of Christians in the world live in the global south, not here in the U.S. What does this say about our own country? I, I think it shows us that sometimes whole communities, whole people groups, whole nations can get frozen up with God, numb to the voice of the Spirit, closed off to God's work, unreceptive to what he wants to do. And I think we live in a frozen culture where the norm of people around us is not vibrant, abundant life. And so when Zechari Zechariah's 
people were like this too. And so when Zechariah's division is on duty and he is serving in the temple, offering the offering, the offering at the, in the Holy of Holies at the altar of incense, no one is expecting to hear from God. Nobody's expecting God to do anything because as far as they're concerned, God just doesn't do that. But God speaks. And here we are in today's passage, Luke chapter 1, verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. The passage then goes on to give lots of descriptions about John the Baptist. So let, let's just break this down section by section. Verse 14, he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. I mean, what parent doesn't want to hear that your child will grow up to be a joy and delight to you? And that many, not just you, Zechariah and Elizabeth, but many people will rejoice because of his birth. There's so much happiness associated with this baby that is going to be born. He's going to be great in God's eyes. That's amazing. John the Baptist is a pretty cool character. The passage continues with the angel saying, He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Now, this is not the first time in Scripture that spirits and the Spirit are compared. And the challenge here is to say, don't he will not fill his body with alcoholic spirits. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, not drinking alcohol was part of a special Nazarite vow that was part of Jewish, the Jewish people. And there are lots of different examples of Nazarite vows throughout Scripture. But uh, John the Baptist was set apart from the very beginning to live a special life, set apart holy, available for God's purposes. Let me just say a quick note here for all brothers and sisters who are dealing with challenges of sobriety during the holiday season. I want you to know that we love you, we are here for you, we see you, we, are, we pray for you. During this season, all the way from now, all the way through, past into the new year, into the beginning of January, we pray for you, knowing that there are often many extra difficulties in this season. We are praying that you will be strong in your sobriety, strong in your recovery. We're praying for Jack Case and the, the, the group that meets on Wednesday nights. We're we are here for you, we love you, and we are cheering for you. And we can hardly wait to get to the other side of January and hear that you've done great. So just know we are here for you and we love you and we support you. So John the Baptist is to refrain from alcohol, but it says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Now, I have never really known of a spirit-filled, sanctified baby, so I'm kind of curious what that must have been like for Zechariah and Elizabeth to have a spirit-filled infant. But he is this, he's this baby prophet, this baby prophet, even from the womb, he is acting as a holy prophet. Later on in this, in this chapter, we have Elizabeth and Mary. So Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. Mary is pregnant with Jesus. And when the two of them come together, Elizabeth hears the, Mary's voice greeting her. And Elizabeth says, Mary, as soon as I heard your voice greeting me, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, it's indicating that John the Baptist, even as an infant in the womb, 
recognized the presence of Jesus. That's pretty fantastic. He's filled with the Spirit even from birth. This is a, John the Baptist is a special baby. The passage continues in verse 16. Gabriel continues to speak. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. He says, John the Baptist, you know what he's going to do? He's going to bring people back. He's going to go out after the people who've drifted, the people who love God but are dead toward him, the people who love God but are numb toward him. He's going to bring them back. He's a bringer-backer. He's going to gather them back in, and he's going to help them reconnect with God. He's going to help them come back to life again. Verse 17, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He says, just like the amazing Old Testament prophet Elijah, John the Baptist will be just like him. He will, be, he will do great things, just like Elijah did great things. And the, the spirit and power of Elijah, the way that Elijah uh, did his prophetic work was he called people to repentance. Elijah's task was to bring Israel back to the Lord. Elijah's task was to challenge people to turn back toward the Lord, to repent of sin, to return to God, to bring their frozen hearts humbly to God and let God do what God needed to do. And it would be the same kind of zeal that John the Baptist would bring hundreds of years later. He would encourage people to turn from sin, repent of sin, return to God, and to prepare. So John the Baptist begins baptizing. He does a baptism of repentance. He says to people, repent of your sins, be baptized. Repent of your sins and be baptized. This, this is shocking for several reasons. Uh, he's doing it in the Jordan River, which is in, in a very public place where everybody's watching. But it's shocking for several reasons because Jews didn't have a, a practice of doing much in the way of baptism. We, when you read through the Old Testament law and covenants, you don't see a lot about baptism. Now, you do see lots about ceremonial washings. The Jews were told to wash their hands, and they had this kind of washing and that kind of washing and different ways of doing cleanse, all different kinds of cleansings. But baptism began when non-Jews, when Gentiles, said, we like this God that you worship, and we want to worship the same God that the Jews do. And so instead of, um, they, they just said, what you need is a whole body washing, not just the ceremonial ones. You need a whole body washing. And if you get a whole body washing, then you can be considered part of the Jewish people. And so uh, baptism began as a way of bringing Gentiles into the people of God. But here we have John the Baptist calling out to Jews, saying, Jews, you need a baptism of repentance. Jews, you have been unfaithful to your God. You have hardened your hearts. Your hearts have become numb to God. You need this baptism of repentance. And he didn't just baptize them in a little pond out in somebody's yard. He took them to the Jordan River. 
this river that was the river that the Israelites crossed before going into the promised land, this river that is symbolic of entering into the new land, the new promise that God has for people. And this was his way of saying, this is your exodus into a new life with God. Be baptized here and cross over into the promised land that God has for you. Leave behind everything that is numb and dead and frozen and enter this new life through repentance. His job was to help them thaw. To pay attention to the parts of them that had frozen up and to help them thaw, recognizing, paying attention to the things that aren't godly, noticing the things that maybe they've just become so used to having in their lives, but God wanted to tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, let's look at this. Preparation. Preparation takes some time and it takes some effort, doesn't it? How many of you cooked a turkey over Thanksgiving or for the Meltrader parties? Anybody cooked a turkey recently? It's kind of an involved process. It's not necessarily easy to cook a turkey. You, you buy a big frozen ball like this in the, in, at the store, right? And then you have to clean it and prepare it, and, and they come frozen. And so you have to let it sit in the refrigerator for a certain period of time, and you have to do it all in a certain way in order to, for it to thaw correctly. In fact, uh, Vince... Vince uh, was one of our people who cooked a turkey for the Mel Trotter party this past week. And we happened to have a giant turkey that somebody had, had donated. And, th I mean, this turkey was like, it was like a 25-pound bird. I mean, it was this massive thing. It took up most of the freezer. And I asked Vince, Vince, how long did it take for that thing to thaw? He said it took six days for that thing to thaw. And uh, I'm, I'm just saying, thawing isn't something that happens immediately, usually. Thawing a heart that is frozen toward God is often something that takes a little time. Often it's taken you time to build up resistance to God. And sometimes it takes a little time for you to thaw enough to realize what's going on. And so John the Baptist challenges people toward repentance toward a thawed heart. I, I wish we could have seen what it was like. I wish we could have watched how John the Baptist did this. Because sometimes I think we think, we hear the word repentance, and we think, oh, repentance, that means he's yelling, you're going to die for your sins. All this bad stuff is going to happen. Which maybe isn't necessarily wrong, but sometimes the manner in which we think of this is, is a little odd. So we think of things like fire and brimstone and really calling people to repent or die, which... Again, isn't always necessarily untrue, but there's, you know, it matters what you hear. But with the people who heard John the Baptist preaching, there's something about this call to repentance that doesn't push people away. There's something about his call to repentance that makes them want more. Because as people begin to be convicted of of sin and of things in their lives that are, are not right with God, you know what the people want? They want to come back. They want more. They, they, they tell other people. They're discovering that the, there is goodness 
in repentance. There is freedom in repentance. And that as they repent of sin and as they realize God knows the depth of my, my issues and God sees the deepest, ugliest parts of me, God sees my bondage, God knows what I'm stuck in, God knows my resistance and my powerlessness. And as they realize they are fully known by God, they begin to experience the goodness of repentance. Have you ever cried deep tears of true repentance? If you have ever had an experience of, of being able to sob and grieve over sin in your life, you might know how good it can be. People keep coming to John the Baptist because they love the freedom. Here are a few thoughts about thawing. Number one, thawing a frozen heart is going to involve repentance. I, th I think it's probably pretty common for all of us at one time or another to say, oh, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of frozen up with God. I'm kind of stuck on some things. But I'm not sure that we would always go toward this idea of, well, it's because I need to repent. Sometimes we think it's God's fault. Sometimes we think it's somebody else's fault. But my challenge to us today is to let's learn from what John the Baptist does and say, maybe there's a place of repentance. Chances are that if you're frozen up with God or if you're a little bit numb toward him, perhaps repentance might be that first door you walk through for the rest of, good, of the goodness God has. The second point is that thawing a frozen heart might involve pain, healing pain. Say you're outside in the cold. Has anybody been outside recently and you forgot your gloves and you're, you either clean off your car, you're shoveling, or, or you're just outside walking for a little bit and you don't have any gloves on and your hands are cold, right? What happens if you walk inside and then put your hands under warm running water? Oh, it hurts. It hurts, right? Because our, our hands have started to become numb and the nerves have started to, to, they've started to freeze up a little bit in there. And, and uh, this is how it is when, but, but we need the heat, right? We need the heat in order to get warmed up again. And that, that warm water is the kind of pain that brings health and life and uh, a future to our hands. This is healing pain. Prophets have the job of being people who disturb us. Prophets like John the Baptist, it's their job to say disturbing things. It's their job to poke you and bother you and make you think about things. It's their job to call you to repentance. And so here, the prophet, John the Baptist says, let's put on the heat a little bit. Let's put on the heat. I'm going to call you to repentance because how you are is not how you can stay. If you stay how you are, you will become completely frozen and you will die. So he says, let's put on the heat. Repentance is life. Point number three, thawing a frozen heart is a gift. Thawing a frozen heart is a gift. Repentance is a gift. In C.S. Lewis's children's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a fantasy story about good and evil. The white witch represents e the evil power of Satan, and Aslan, the lion, 
represents Jesus, who gave up his life out of love to save everyone else and then overcame death by powerful magic. Okay, it's this, it's this uh, children's fantasy story. And the story opens up in the magical land of Narnia, in which the white witch has reign over it. And in Narnia, one of the saddest things about it is that they say it is always winter, but never Christmas. Which is kind of how it feels in February here in Michigan. But there, that's how it was. And scattered across this frozen, barren country of Narnia are frozen statues of ice. These are hundreds of poor souls who found themselves on the bad side of the white witch. And so in order to punish them, she turned them into statues of ice using her magic. And for all practical purposes, it seems like this is the end for those poor frozen souls. But in the story near the end, Aslan is getting ready to rally his troops for the final battle of good and evil. And he comes and he breathes life on all of those who have been frozen by the evil witch. He lovingly approaches each statue and breathes his life-giving breath on them, thawing them out of their frozen state to bring them back to life again. Let's, let's watch this short clip from the movie. There are a couple humans uh, who you will see them uh, coming in to, to look at these statues. Many of us are like those frozen statues, frozen up. And we need the breath of God. It is only the power of God that can make life come out of those places of death and deadness. Repentance is a gift from God. Repentance is both chosen and it is a gift. We choose to repent. We practice repentance often at church. We practice repentance, hopefully you do in your own prayers, but repentance is also a gift. 
We can't do it unless God gives it to us. The scripture uses the word that, the phrase that God grants us repentance. It's not something we do on our own. It says God's kindness leads us to repentance and that God has given us the privilege of turning from sin and receiving eternal life. It is God's gift to us that we get to repent. It is something that he does out because it is so good, not because he wants to grind us into the dirt and make us focus on how awful we are. He wants us to understand the depth of our, our struggle and our, our failure so that we can understand the even deeper restoration and fulfillment that God will do. People keep coming to John the Baptist for repentance because they love the freedom, because they've discovered there's such goodness in repentance. When Jesus came, when Jesus, after he was born and he grew up and he became an adult, he went out preaching to people, and his primary message was repent and believe. Repent and believe. And for us, that is the salvation message today, repent and and believe. If you are not a Christian yet, the, mess, the communication to you is to repent and believe. If you are a Christian, the message to you is keep on repenting, keep on believing. You have to have repentance if you're going to have saving faith. You do not have saving faith in Jesus unless you have had repentance. And saving faith is the only requirement then for salvation. Repentance is this good gift. People who are repenting from sin are starting to experience a thaw in their lives. This saving faith means that, that this repentance means that the ice around their heart is starting to melt. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt that nudge that maybe that, that your, your hardness is starting to drip away, that maybe you're coming to life in a new way. People who experience the gift of, of repentance are starting to experience, oh, I, I have a new empowerment to live how God wants me to. I have a new desire to live how God wants me to. I recognize things in my life I've never seen before. All of that, church, is the Holy Spirit working in you, equipping you, giving you the ability to repent. This is the grace of God granting repentance to you. This is a sign of God's activity in your life. If you start to get to the point where you don't want to sin anymore, where you don't want this thing in your life, you want freedom. If you've got a little bit of movement in an area that's been frozen up for a long time, this is the empowerment of God's Spirit coming on you, equipping you, giving you a vision and a sense of possibility for the redemption that God wants to do. This is the goodness of repentance. Repentance is the first step to everything else. Without repentance, there is no everything else. Without repentance, there is no saving faith. But repentance is that first step through that first open door. This repentance is good news, but then even, there's even more good news after that. After, after repentance, there is the possibility of you choosing saving faith in Jesus to say, Jesus, I depend on you. I rely on you. I choose you. I trust you. I believe in you. I trust you for who you say you are and for what you will do. And then there's more good news after that. After saving faith, there's, there's the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit filling you and having the Holy Spirit inhabit you in deeper and deeper ways. 
There's also, church, then, more good news. There's the promise of resurrection that one day Jesus will come back. The dead in Christ will be raised, and those who are still alive will meet with him, and he will bring resurrection to our bodies, and we will experience resurrection just like Jesus did and have new life with Christ. And that's not all the good news. There's even more good news after that. There is this gift of glorification of a, where we'll be glorified to be the kind of people that God originally designed us to be back in Eden. Good news after good news after good news after good news. And it all begins with step one, repentance. Everything begins with that good gift of repentance. And so when God sent John the Baptist, he said, John, I want you to prepare the way. Prepare. And the way that we prepare is by seeing if God's giving us this gift of repentance. To confess our sins, to turn away from anything that is not saturated and steeped in the holiness of God. To resist anything. Maybe it's not a bad sin. Maybe it's just a normal sin that everybody else knows is normal. But maybe it's not of God. And repentance is turning away from anything that is not fully steeped in the holiness of God. Repentance is the first step to the life that we all want. Repentance is the first step toward this beautiful gift of life and freedom. Repentance prepares the way for everything else. Repentance prepares the way for Christmas. Repentance prepares the way for Jesus to take up home and live in your life. Repentance clears the way for you to become the you that God dreams of when he looks at you. If you have a sense of any sort of holy dissatisfaction. If there is a part of your life that you say, I don't want it here. I long for freedom from that. I, God, I, I, I want to turn from this. God, I believe that I can if you help me. If you have any sense of God stirring up in you, a turning away from the destructive things that the enemy would have you believe you're stuck with, please recognize this is God at work in you. This is God working in you, inviting you into a whole new life, inviting you into a whole new reality. John the Baptist came so that we could prepare the way for the Lord. And the invitation for you today, whether you have been a Christian for a long time or whether you haven't found saving faith in Jesus yet, all of us can practice repentance. Let's take a few moments right now and simply bow our heads and connect with the God. Lord God, please give us this gift of repenting. Show us what you long for us to be free from. Show us anything that does not manifest your kingdom. Show us any lies we believe about ourselves or about other people. Show us stubbornness that we are hanging on to, Lord God. Give us a distaste for the sins that we have loved before. Give us the gift of your repentance, Lord God. Give the gift of repentance for hard-heartedness. 
the gift of repentance for hard-headedness. And Lord, we pause and we confess before you our sins. Take a few moments and confess to the Lord anything that might be on your mind right now. Lord, John the Baptist, you sent him to come preaching a baptism of repentance because you knew how good it could be. And Lord, for all of the things that have just now been offered up to you, just like a prayer wafting up to heaven with the altar of incense, God, receive our confessions. Thank you for the gift of repentance. The scripture says it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. The scripture says for us to repent then and turn to God that our sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And I pray, Lord Jesus, for fresh showers of your Holy Spirit to rain down on us, to thaw us, to thaw the frozen, hard, icy parts of us that have become callous and resistant to you. I pray that you will thaw us and warm us and breathe your life into us, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. amen. What a beautiful way to enter into this Christmas week. Prepared. Preparing. Receiving the kindness of God that leads you to really be ready for him. If you today would say, I'm repenting, I'm repenting, um, I, I, maybe I've been a Christian for a while, but I just, I need to re repent again. Uh, probably if you're human, you might need to, because that's how life goes. But you felt the Lord stirring something in you. Or if maybe you haven't placed your faith in Jesus yet, but you sense God calling you, giving you freedom to something, would you just lift your hand right now and say, today I, I'm just repenting and asking God for fresh living water to flow over me, for him to cleanse me from sin and do a new work in me. Wash over me, God. And if you have not yet put, found saving faith in Jesus, maybe you've repented, but you hadn't chosen saving faith in Jesus, maybe this is your day to say, I choose to put my faith in Jesus. I choose him for salvation. If that's you, would you lift your hands today? I can't think of a better way to go into Christmas than saying, my faith is in Jesus. As we participate in communion today, I'm going to invite